Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to a special episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. This episode is a break from our usual format. It features a panel discussion which took place at the People Analytics and Future of Work conference in San Francisco, which took place at the end of January. One of the bittersweet aspects of the COVID-19 crisis is that People Analytics has become even more important. As one head of People Analytics commented to me, People Analytics is truly more impactful than ever in the current crisis. It's gone from being a strategic differentiator, the best CHROs demand, to an absolute essential to manage the crisis. In a recent article in The Economist which compared the role of the Chief People Officer in this crisis to the role of the CFO in the global financial crisis, one of the conclusions drawn is that the pandemic makes people analytics even more relevant. As such, there is much interest about the future of people analytics, where it's headed and why. This was the topic of the panel I moderated at People Analytics and the Future of Work, which featured two of the most renowned and prominent leaders in our field. Dawn Klinghoffer, the global head of people analytics at Microsoft and a previous guest on this podcast, and Amit Mohindra, the global head of talent strategy and analytics at Wayfair. Whilst the discussion took place before the full implications of what was then an outbreak of a new coronavirus in Wuhan, China, much of what was said is relevant both for today and also the post-COVID world. Dawn, Amit and I discuss highlights of the work Dawn and her team have undertaken at Microsoft and Amit has delivered in people analytics leadership roles at McKesson, Apple and now Wayfair. We also talk about where the future of people analytics lies, the opportunities and the threats. We look at the role of people analytics in helping their organisations identify the link between employee wellbeing and company financial performance. We also look at the key challenges that need to be overcome for people analytics to realise its tremendous potential. And we also provide tips to practitioners on where they can focus as they seek to develop people analytics within their companies. This episode is a must listen for CHROs and those working in a workforce planning or people analytics role, and indeed anyone interested in the role people data plays in helping drive better outcomes for the business, managers, and their workforces. A huge thank you to Al Adamson and the team for allowing us to create this podcast from the panel discussion. People Analytics and the Future of Work, which is affectionately known as PFAO, is a conference that usually takes place in four cities each year, San Francisco, Sydney, London, and New York. The London in-person event that was due to take place on 28th to 30th of April has now shifted online. I'll be co-chairing the conference with Al. If you'd like to join and find out more, please head over to pafow.net. That's P-A-F-O-W.net. Speakers concerned so far conclude Dawn, Josh Burson, Majura Chakrabarti, Patrick Coolan, and Frida Polly. Welcome, Amit. Welcome, Dawn. It's great to great to see you both. Um, I think it might be helpful. I mean, Al gave Al gave you a tremendous introduction, and you were both outside, so you didn't get to hear it. So, um, I think, as Al said, you're two of the leading exponents in the space. You've both been in the people analytics field for for quite a long time, and you've both openly shared when you can um, what what you're actually doing as well. I think, and it helps inspire everyone in this room and outside this room watching on the live stream as well. Um, so, Dawn, maybe if we start with you, what, how, tell, us, tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get into people analytics and, and why do you remain within the field? 
So I, I love the story. And sorry if you've heard this story before, because I, if there's only one story of how I got into people analytics. So it's the same every single time. Uh, I started at Microsoft over 20 years ago, and I am a math person. I love numbers. Not so much words, but I love numbers. And I was in finance, and I um, this is the, the, the perfect story to share with people that are stressing about the fact that they don't have a five-year plan okay, in their career. And so I had my first child and I knew that I could not work the hours that I was working in finance. And so one of my former colleagues in finance had moved over to HR to be the head of compensation and benefits. And he was starting this new team. Now, of course, we didn't call it people analytics back then because we didn't really know what people analytics uh, was, but he, we had a data warehouse and he said, you know, we have this data warehouse. We don't know what to do with the information. And I'd love for you to come over here and bring uh, an analytics capability to HR. And I said to him, will you let me work part-time? And he said, sure, no problem. And this is old school Microsoft. I did not interview for the job. Actually, my boss at the time is in the audience. Um, and he kind of, he met me for the first time. We had lunch and I, and I said, do you have any questions for me? And he said, not really. We have a lot of work to do. And so I started and uh, it was, you know, a few years after that, when I started leading the team. But my expectation was that I would go over there, work part-time for a few years, and then I would go back to finance. Like I had no intention ever of being in HR. That was just not part of my plan. But what happened was I realized there was so much work to be done. And here we are 17 years later, and I still have so much work to do and, and I'm still doing it. And so that's kind of how I got into it and why I've continued to stay. Fantastic. And Emmett? Similarly, what got you into people analytics and what keeps you in people analytics? Because yeah, you've so, been to different companies as well. Yeah, I've moved around quite a bit. So I, like many boys and girls from India of my age, uh, it was all about becoming an engineer. So I fulfilled my parents' ambitions of becoming an engineer. But my true love was in economics and in particular labor economics. And so I found my way through a circuitous route into HR, initially in compensation, and I, began, I was new to HR, I didn't know what it was, and I looked around and I was wondering why do we do things the way we do? What's, what's the reason for this process or this policy? And people would just say that's because we've always done it this way. And so I just began using my research background, my mathematics, engineering solution orientation, optimization from economics, and began to look at things and come up with models and solve things and this is actually back in the previous century, if you can believe it, 1999. Um, I was able to convince my boss at the time, who was the head of compensation at Lehman Brothers, to start a new group. I would be the head, I'd get a promotion, called HR Strategy and Analysis. Because at that time, the word analytics was not used uh, very frequently. And so that's when I began. And then I sort of moved back into compensation benefits, did some other things, moved around the world. Uh, and then I was asked to start up a, a, a workforce intelligence practice at McKesson, which is a huge healthcare company. And by this time, people's analytics had become sort of not mainstream, but it was, it was known. And so that was sort of the first formal people analytics job that I had. And then after that, I was asked to start a people analytics team at Apple. How awesome was that? So these two experiences of starting from scratch, you know, a few people essentially doing reporting and building it into a, a true people analytics team, 
was really incredible. And then I decided to just try and give back a little bit. And so I started a consulting company. I spent a lot of time teaching. I began teaching at Berkeley, at Stanford, um, people analytics, trying to raise awareness, trying to help people understand that it's not that difficult. You can, everyone can get, get into it. Um, you don't need to have a PhD. You don't need to have uh, hugely technical skills. Um, and I also began uh, doing some executive coaching of people in HR leadership roles who sort of were caught unawares by analytics and how do you lead and how do you show up as a, as a leader in, in the world of analytics and big data. And also um, people analytics leaders who often come to the table with numbers and objectivity and thinking that here are the numbers, they should speak for themselves, but you really need to come and show up as, as an HR leader, as a business leader. And eventually it's all about driving change. So there's still lots of change to be driven uh, in, in the world of HR and the world of business through people analytics. And that's what keeps me going. Great. Two slightly different routes, but you know, with a similar, similar destination, it seems. Um, before we start talking about the future, because obviously we mustn't forget that the, our panel discussion is about the future of people analytics, it's probably good to understand where we are today. Um, Dawn, you weren't here this morning, but I put up the latest LinkedIn uh, talent trends and people analytics was one of the four trends on it. Employee experience was on there as well. And we all know how important analytics is to, to delivering the employee experience. And congratulations, by the way, because I saw the trends report before you posted it and saw that you were very much highlighted in the report. So uh, congratulations. Yeah, there's no bias that I'm mentioning that report. <laughs> so but, but thank you. But it, it's something I read every year. So it was, it was nice to be invited to... Uh, to be interviewed for it, probably because people analytics was on there. Maybe, I don't know. Um, and in terms of understanding where we are, I mean, obviously you guys have seen, you know, you, when you both got into it, it wasn't even called people analytics. You know, compared to where, to where you, when you came in, to where you are now, I mean, obviously the, the, the field has accelerated tremendously. You know, where do you feel the field is at the moment in terms of, you know, is it, and what still do you think improvements need to happen? So, Dawn, I'll start with you. So, it, it, it's interesting because there are times when I feel like we have progressed as a profession tremendously. And then there are times when I feel like, wow, people are still grappling with how do I get data out of the, the data warehouse and figure out what to do with it? Okay. And so, I feel like there's just such a spectrum. And, and every organization is somewhere along that spectrum. But, it, you know, it, it really, what I do see happening is technology is enabling us so much more than, than ever before. Okay. You know, w way back then, what, 15, 20 years ago, we didn't have Workday. We didn't have success factors. We had an SAP version, you know, that, but it wasn't the UI that, that, that we have today. Um, we didn't have standard reports. Okay. We didn't have a way to just kind of click a button and say, yep, here's your attrition report. Um, but, but what we did have back then were questions and hypotheses. Okay. And now we have a way to actually prove those hypotheses or disprove those hypotheses. Um, and then I also think about the capability. Oh my gosh, 15 years ago, 
you want to talk to someone about data in HR and, and their eyes start glassing over like, no, 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 that's not really what, what I'm here. You know, I, I know in my gut what the right decision is. Um, and now you have these HR professionals that are taking classes, okay, on people analytics. I mean, Amit is, is teaching those classes and, and it, you know, there are folks, we hire folks that are getting their MBAs so they come out of, out of school having taken a class in people analytics, uh, which is incredible. So I do feel, and these aren't people that are going to be people analytics practitioners. These are folks that want to spend their time in, in HR as a generalist or as a recruiter. So I, I'm really, I'm excited about the future. And, and like I said, there are days when I feel like we should be further, a lot further along. Um, but then I, I look back and I feel like we have made a lot of progress. And Amit, same, same question to you, but nuance with the great article you wrote last year when you put a picture of some quantum physicists from the early part of the 20th century, and I think you pointed out how many of them ended up getting Nobel Prizes. Are we going to witness something similar in people analytics? Yeah, I mean, it's still growing tremendously. Uh, there is more data. There are more tools and techniques, and these techniques are bleeding in from all different fields. There are more people coming in. Uh, also from different fields, um, not necessarily with an HR background, and they bring with them different ideas. Um, people with a business background are coming in. More and more, I think, we're sort of switching towards uh, business orientation. You, you start with, uh, I think you always start with strategy, you end up with outcomes, but it's always business outcomes. And I think the field is maturing from just sort of focusing internally on HR to now focusing on the business. And I think that's a huge uh, evolutionary step. So in a way, people analytics is changing HR mm -hmm. for the better. I would hope so. Yeah. I, would think. I would hope so. Okay. It's actually making people think differently. Okay, that's what I that's what I'm noticing. It's really making my HR partners think differently, and and the way we talk. and And I love what Amit said about business outcomes because that is something that I, I probably sound like a broken record. I use that those those two words together far too often, but it's because that is the north star. What is the outcome that you're trying to drive? And it's a business outcome, you know. And and even engagement can be a business outcome. Okay. And so it's not just when you say business outcome, it has to mean revenue. Mm. Um, there's so many different types of business outcomes that you try to drive. So it's helping, it's really helping HR increase its impact and be more, as you said, be more outcome focused than, than maybe it has in the past. Yeah. Okay. I think, I think it's, uh, it's a totally different function um, than what it was even 10 years ago. So this morning we had Jeffrey Pfeffer on stage talking, you know, talking about some of the research behind his Dying for a Paycheck book. Um, you know, and he said that his biggest wish was that more companies recognised that there is a link between employee health and company financial performance. Do you think we're doing enough as a field um, to do that at the moment? I'm not going to talk about your individual companies. Maybe you, you have done some stuff to, 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 to look at that. Do you think that's a real challenge for the field to, to, to try and meet moving forward? I, th I think it is. I think um, we're in the business of discovery, of discovering relationships and um, insights that can tell us what we need to do. Uh, Jeffrey, he had all sorts of data to back up the fact that there is a big problem, a huge problem, but I think he also pointed out why things are not happening. Um, the free market, uh, people's choice, um, it's such an intractable problem, but I think the more you can chip away, the more evidence you can provide, uh, 
uh, the better chances there are to find some sort of gap uh, crack to to get in there and, and begin to attack the problem. But uh, I think just uh, from one, my own personal experience, you have to be so careful about not getting completely sucked in by work. Um, mm. And and I think it, it, it can get to the point where you have to worry about health for sure. So I was, my plane was two hours late today. I was in the airport. I was live streaming Gafau. So I was able to see the first part of his uh, talk, which was really um, exceptional. And, uh, you know, it, when he was talking, it kind of reminded me of one of, one of my favorite insights that we've gotten uh, at Microsoft. And, and this is an insight that actually we've seen. Um, I, I've talked to other companies and, and they've done the same type of work and seen this as well. And it connects um, it's, it's about collaboration overload. Okay. So, you know, as Amit said, you, you can, you let yourself kind of get consumed with work. Okay. And so we have a way to, to look at calendar and email metadata and how many of you spend a lot of time in email. Okay. So I think almost every person raised their hand and w- we are obsessed with email at Microsoft. Okay. I used to think that we were obsessed with it because we created Outlook, but what I've realized is we created Outlook for a lot of people and everyone is obsessed with Outlook or email. Okay. And it doesn't matter if you're on Outlook or not. Um, and so what we did was we wanted to understand the, the effects of email on your perception of balance of work-life balance. And so we did this type of correlation and, and we did it in two ways. One, we looked at kind of emails from your manager, Okay, so do more emails from your manager? Do you start to feel like your work-life balance is not so good? And the answer is yes, okay? And and actually, we we peeled the onion a little bit and said, is it different depending on the job that you have? So our engineer is actually more tolerant of emails than the salespeople. The answer is no. Salespeople are more tolerant than emails than the engineering folks because the engineering folks, they want to be in their office coding all day. They do not want to be bothered with emails. Then we also looked at just kind of general email overload after hours, okay? And, and after hours is the key there. Um, so the story that I like to tell is I'm, I'm busy and in meetings all week. And so it was always, and this is, I, I was so um, guilty of this. Every Friday I would go home and I would spend probably two or three hours cleaning out my inbox so that on Monday morning I could go in and hit the ground running. I never stopped to think about the impact that I was having on everyone else on those emails I was sending because people would wake up on Saturday morning, even though I didn't ask them at all to do anything over the weekend. The perception is you have to work all weekend because you have all these emails. And so, you know, I love that we were able to prove that, that it actually does have quite an impact on your work-life balance, the number of emails that you get after hours, um, that we've kind of built it into our, into one of the products that we have um, within Outlook so that it actually tells you, really, are you sure you want to send this email right now? Because this is the impact that you're going to have on people. And work-life balance is real. Okay. I mean, you, you, people that have a perception that their work-life balance is not good, that can impact them bringing their best selves to work every single day. And so we do want to figure out all of those different ways that we can, that we can address that. And is that one of the things about what people analytics can do? It can give insights and actually help change behaviors through those insights. So there's the example at Microsoft. You probably don't send so many emails on Friday night now. Or if you do, you queue them. So they I go, can schedule them yeah, to go out, them, but then yeah. you don't Monday want to morning. schedule all of them out on Monday morning either because I'm sure that will have another type of unintended consequence. So. 
Yeah, it's all about behavior in the end, right? So it's behavior, it's action, um, and that's where we often find this gap between you, you get the insight and then uh, you try to drive the action. And that's sort of the, I think, one of the biggest nuts to crack in this field. How do you ensure that the action actually happens? So let's look to the future. Um, so I'm going to come to each of you really similar questions. So hopefully you've got different ideas. Um, you know, let's roll forward maybe five years time. You know, what do you think some of the people analytics work that we'll be doing? I know it's tied to a business problem. So let's forget about the technique a little bit. But, but what, where do you see the practice going? You know, and from a positive side, and maybe what concerns you as well. So again, um, Amit, why don't you go first this time? So I think um, there is going to be a little bit of a divergence in terms of uh, people analytics teams right now are are getting bigger and bigger uh, because you need to start with something that can establish standards, can set up the infrastructure. What I think is going to happen is that these teams will begin to dissipate. The center of gravity will move outwards into the regions, into the functions. Ultimately, you don't need necessarily a people analytics team because analytics is pervasive. Everyone, HR and beyond, is thinking of it in terms of thinking of everything, uh, decisions and actions in terms of analytics, choices, strategy. Um, and so the information will be available through various tools, uh, kind of pervasively everywhere in every device. And you may not need any more central group to look at it. Uh, and so you're going to have this optimization sort of everywhere around you. You don't necessarily have to have a group that's doing it. See, I disagree. Good. Yeah. <laughs> it's always good to have a slight disagreement on a panel. <laughs> so, I, so I agree with the first part, that it is pervasive and that it's going to be everywhere. But I think it's these analytics teams that are going to come up with the different behaviors or insights to actually build into this type of whatever it is, technology. Um, and so if you don't have those teams, I mean, this is one of my pet peeves is that you read an insight somewhere and you say, oh, okay, well, this company did that. It's true. It's I'm going to implement those changes at my company and I'm going to see the same type of business impact. But that's not true because every company is different. And you can't just assume that one company has done something and it's going to be um, the same everywhere else. And so I would, I would kind of position that back to what you said is that, you know, while we can buy technology off the shelf and hope that, that many of the, um, you know, kind of algorithms that, that are in, in the background of that technology work for your company, there's going to be nuances. And so you're going to need to still have these humans that are kind of coming up with these hypotheses, testing them, and then you'll build these customizations within the technology. Okay, and, and so does that mean that every company needs to be a technology company? I don't know, but but I'm starting to read that every company is starting to become a technology company. So, and it's funny because Jeffy Pfeffer said this morning that every company was in the health healthcare okay. business. Oh, okay. So we're all we're all multifaceted now. Um, it's, it's interesting, and we're seeing sort of a bit of a move towards um, some people analytics teams are either merging or working much more closely with their colleagues in, in other analytics teams, probably to one of your points there, Amit. Um, is that a progression, or is that, does that depend on the organization, I think? You know, but are we going to see more closer collaboration between different analytics teams? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think the word community of practice is used often in this situation where you have 
different groups doing analytics of a different flavor. Uh, but there's always room for collaboration. You can use the same model in one situation as in another with a little bit of tweaking. Um, you can share technology licenses and uh, sort of save money that way. Um, you know, uh, Kat and Aaron from Wayfair presented earlier today. Uh, they presented on topic modeling, a text analytics tool. And they also mentioned that they had worked with some of our data scientists in the field that are looking at text analytics of customer feedback and other things. And so there's a lot of opportunity to collaborate and learn from one another. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. In fact, um, for our text, our topic modeling tool, we actually went to the, the marketing team and the, the team that was using the, the they were mining data from customers. And we said, we know that employee sentiment is different than customer sentiment, but we're going to start with that base model and then we will adjust it. And so that's, again, back to my point of there are just these nuances and everything is just not completely transferable. No. And, and then I think we've talked, we talk, I know you've been doing some work at Microsoft around this and I think you've done something previously, where we can actually use data to empower the workforce a bit more by giving them insights about themselves that, that helps them with their own career development, like some of the products that we're seeing that support career pathing, uh, but even give insights about their own behavior and how that might impact negatively or positively on, on their team. So we sign, do you think we'll see more of that? Gosh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like that truly is, that, that starts to really empower people to, to kind of own their own data, own their own actions and behaviors, but you give them the tools to see how you're having an impact. Um, the evolution of people analytics on people to people analytics for people. Yeah. And I think it's going to progress to a point where there's going to be a, a rebalancing of the power equation because I think people will become more aware of the power they have over their own data. And you're gonna see some difficulty in trying to extract that data and use it, especially if it's not for the sole benefit of the employee. We'll come back to that point in a minute. I think Al's got a question. Some of the audience has got a question there. I think it's Gene, I think. Hi, um, Gene Pease, Amit and Don, great stuff. And David, thanks for your contributions for all this. So. David, you had, you showed a statistic this morning that was, I can't remember, 69% or something of large organizations that you defined as 10,000 or more employees had people analytics departments. I think there's over 10,000 companies in the U.S. that have between 500 and 5,000 uh, 5, employees or 10,000 employees, somewhere in there, below, below your number, that I believe are just starting this people analytics journey. Um, and based on the experience up there, how does a company that's got five, and many, many of these companies are not Silicon Valley, they've got a lot of blue collar retail, um, not high tech um, workers. How do these companies, based on your experience, where would um, Don and Amit, how do they get started? Where would they get started first? How, like you did many moons ago, but now you've got this amazing array of technology, all these shiny new objects, lots of different ways to look at things. How would you get started today if you were taking over a company of 2,000 employees that had 300 managers and whatever, the, about 2,700 workers and factories and truck drivers and 
Does that question make any sense? Yeah, no, it does. I think it's a valid question. It's a question that often comes up. What's the size of company uh, you have to have in order to have a people analytics team? And so you need, yeah, I would say at least 50, 60 people before you do something. And remember, it's not necessarily always quantitative research. It can be qualitative research as well. So there's that aspect. But starting out, I would suggest that people focus on this, on data and the sources of data and beginning to make sure that they set in place processes and, and thinking that will make analytics easier going forward. So you have an opportunity at the early stage to set the conditions for being able to do people analytics. And then what I would add is pick something that's super important to the leadership team, okay, to the the, the senior folks in the organization. <clears throat> Look at the strategy. Say, what do I actually have available to me to to influence and to kind of steer into the right direction with a with a very um, you know a clear business outcome? And if you can just pick one, okay, because the problem is sometimes you just spread yourself too thin, and you and you say, oh, and I can do this and this and this. And none of them actually get done. Okay, if you can get one done, you start to to get you start to pull people in. Okay, they start to realize, oh wow, there is power here, and I'm going to come and ask more. So I always say, start start with one, just one. And it doesn't need to be the most sophisticated analytics. Nope. It's all about the insight and the problem, isn't it, mm-hmm. that you're trying to solve. You want to have people come to you, um, and rather than ha- you pushing stuff onto them, you want to have a pull. And people want you to come and look at a particular situation or, or give give some guidance on what you're seeing. I feel like that's when we knew that we had something going, when we stopped pushing, okay? And that when we started getting inundated and we had more work than we could possibly do, and then we had to start prioritizing. It was no more like the shopping around, like, hey, do you like this? Can you use this? Um, so that I, I think for, for those of you that are in the midst of it, if you can get to that point, you know you, you have something. So if I might j- jump in, uh, a couple things. Before I ask my question, we have about 10 minutes left, and this is your time. So if you all have any questions for Ahmed or Don, um, by all means, you know, tee them up and, and let's get this going, and then we'll go for drinks. So my question is this, is that when I first started in this field, and I know the case is true for both you, um, Ahmed and Don, is that it was a part-time job. In other words, I had a lot of responsibilities and go do research, go figure something out. And now, given the nature of the work, the proliferation of data, all these tools, it is a full-time job and then some. Now there are teams. However, CIHROs and others with budget do not appreciate that fact. And we're not, I would say, we're by and large as a discipline under-resourced. So my pointed question is, if you believe that or, or, or not, uh, run with me for a second. How do we, as a discipline, command additional resources, to whether it be headcount, whether it be budget for some of these cool tools? You know, how do we build sustainable capability in four minutes or less? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so in my experience, you're right. Headcount is always tight, uh, and especially HR headcount, uh, seen as a cost. So in my experience, if you can deliver results and products for businesses, they will invariably come to you with heads and funding. And you can then uh, use those resources to build. 
and then you can expand delivery even more. It sort of accelerates after that. So if you can demonstrate value, then people will give you more resourcing. And I agree 100%. And another way to kind of just to add on to that is look around the organization. There usually are pockets of people doing similar types of work around, okay? And if you can make a case to bring people in and centralize and have more fungibility with the resources, you can often also get additional resources that way. Um, And you're not talking about net new resources for the company, but you're kind of thinking about how to orchestrate things in a different way. And is that also to your earlier point, Dawn, about finding that business problem that, that, that surfaced with the senior management team? Because then you're more likely to be able to pull those resources together. Yeah, and that's one of the challenges, right, is that, um, and that's why I love the fungibility of resources and having that kind of centralized function, because there are times when you need a lot of resources on one area, okay? Maybe your recruiting function is getting ready to, to make a big change, or um, you, your global diversity and inclusion team is about to spend a lot of money on a certain program, and you need to help with that. Um, and you can kind of shift resources around where it needs to be at the time, okay, depending on the, the rhythm of the business or whatnot. And when you don't have that, it makes it very challenging. Okay. I think also um, a small team is actually quite a luxury as well. So if you have a small team, enjoy it because it, it, gets, it gets harder as the team grows. Uh, but a small team allows you to prioritize. Yes. And it also forces you to be creative. Uh, in doing things. So there are some advantages too. There's a question. If you could say Nick? your name as well, it'd be helpful for people listening. Sure. Hi, uh, Nick Garbus from One Model uh, as of Monday. Hi, Don and Amit. Uh, thank you again. Uh, question In uh, the future of work, I see that we're going to have teams that are pretty dynamic and, and agile working structures and things where the uh, work you're doing may not be for your direct manager or even working with your direct manager very much. What are your thoughts on what analytics will look like or be needed to handle this more kind of freeform uh, structure of work? So you're just saying that the reporting relationships are more dispersed and teams are short-lived and yeah, sort of fluid? Exactly. Short-lived teams. So I might, might have the same boss for five years, but my work has been done on, on six different teams and I see my boss once a month. Yeah. I, I think if you can tag all of those different situations and instances and timing, uh, then you can begin to look at that. So it's, I would say tagging would be necessary, <laughs> absent having stuff baked into some sort of HRS. Okay. I'm, I'm going to jump in and ask one more question um, and then put me to my place. <laughs> it's this, when we, as we talk about the future of work, which again is a somewhat catchphrase, uh, but it is real, right? And it's always going to be real and it is shifting. We have AI, globalization, gig economy, the nature of work within organizations, as Nick was saying, is, is changing. Right now, there's not many functions or governance bodies that are systematically looking at how work gets done. And my question is, I am have a line of thinking that people analytics is uniquely positioned to facilitate a discussion around the future of work. And if you believe that, you know, how do we build a coalition of dispersed functions to actually systematically get after 
you know, how work is going to get done. And I'm talking about IT, I'm talking about you know, legal operations. So we're actually thinking systematically and not jumping over each other as we go over time. If, if you can comment on that, I'd be interested. I agree with you, Al. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> how about you, Don? Do you think it's going to happen or is it just like if we go down two, three years, are we going to be saying the same wishful thinking or do you think it's actually going to happen that we're guiding those types of discussions? I mean, gosh, uh, two years, I think is a, is a lofty, um, a lofty goal, but I think it will happen. I mean, I think, so I, I think about the cultural attribute we have one Microsoft. Okay. So what you're articulating is what is, is our aspiration. One Microsoft that we operate as one unit. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's a lofty goal for an, an organization the size of ours, but that is, that is the goal. Okay. Is there any more? Yeah, Jeff. Jeff. Question back there. Uh, yeah, uh, Jeff Higgins, HCMI. Um, relative to your, uh, I guess, an add-on to your question, uh, comment, Al, and also some of the you know future of work. Um, what do you think about future standards in terms of reporting as a standard? And do you, do you believe in that? Or do you think that's actually going to have an effect? Because if you look at finance, which has accounting standards. Uh, you know, they, they do have resource challenges as well, but not in the same vein where teams get pulled apart and redirected all the time. They tend to be able to get what they need to get things done because they have to put together annual reports and uh, submit information to shareholders that HR currently isn't doing. So I'll tackle that one. I, I mean, I feel like, so of course you would ask that question. Um, I know you're very much on the forefront of, of all of this. And and I, I agree with you, but I, you know, I don't know when it's going to be like an SEC requirement, okay? But what I would say is it's starting to become something that transparency is is a big deal right now, okay? And if you look at the the external release that that Microsoft had with diversity and inclusion, I mean, we feel obligated to our employees, to our shareholders, to release that type of information, and it was a big, big release this year. We included a lot of things that we hadn't included before. And that kind of goes to your point that, that I think that is kind of going, it's going in that direction. Will it be a requirement for the SEC? I don't know, but I think it will be something that companies feel like they are obligated to do. I think it's an opportunity for companies to differentiate themselves and also start moving in this direction of demonstrating, you know, what the benefits of being an employee there are, you know, from a diversity standpoint, from health standpoint. So I think when companies are forced to do it, there's a certain kind of reaction. Um, and maybe this is what Al was referring to in his earlier question about people analytics sort of creating that coalition or uh, motive force to try and drive this change in the sense of moving uh, society and organizations towards uh, a better future. And, and is there a shift as well with uh, the business roundtable announcement at the end of last year? I mean, it was, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's good PR as well, but it's an interesting statement to say that we now care about all stakeholders, yeah. communities, employees and stuff. So then you've got to start reporting on it. But I love what Ahmed said. It's, it's, it becomes different when all of a sudden it's a requirement, okay? And that's what I love. That's what, you know, I truly love about the fact that we ourselves decided that we wanted to release more information and be more transparent with our employees and our shareholders. Um, no one was telling us we had to do that. 
you know? Um, and, and that's where I feel like you can start to understand the companies that are truly thinking in that way and the ones that are kind of saying, mm, not so much. And what I would say is looking externally, um, there are a lot of companies out there that are releasing a lot of information. And, and again, there's no SEC requirement for these companies. They're just kind of, they're, they're feeling like it's, it is, it's good for everyone to understand this. And I know you're both passionate about doing the right thing with people analytics and being transparent and open. And this is being transparent with people data effectively, isn't it? And getting that trust <coughs> yeah. from, from, the, from the workforce. So, uh, second last question, Daphne. Hi, Daphne Aronson, um, Be Sports Minded. I really work on the sports side of things. And first of all, thank you so much for sharing your experience across such a large, like a longitudinal study of experience, because it really does give, it highlights how important and how far people analytics has come. And I have a background in analytics, but now I like to see how it can expand just past where we are right now. And in saying that, I wanted to connect what was being said over here with what Al was mentioning, and that is this coalition, right? Do you guys think that there's the potential for it to professionalize in that people analytics becomes a profession so that you could have a people analytics in sports, right? Right now I have a psychology, so it I can leverage it differently and I can sort of blend it. But wouldn't it be kind of cool if there was, instead of just a coalition, we professionalized it and just made it something. And to the extent with whether or not it's done through you know, SEC regulation or coming up with standards, which by the way, Deborah Weiss is speaking to that whole thing tomorrow, um, you know, just formalizing it, right? So it is something that's recognized and not just um, a mishmash of people who are like-minded and trying to push things forward. Wow. So I haven't thought about that, frankly, Daphne. That's a great question. I, on the one hand, Certainly, some degree of standards, uh, body of knowledge, um, and I'm thinking about this as a teacher trying to uh, equip new people coming to the field. What do they need to know, and what do they need to know how to do? But I worry about. I, I don't think I'm sold at this point about trying to professionalize uh, people analytics. I think it might be more exclusionary, um, and would at this point perhaps. Uh, constrict growth and innovation. And I, I like to think that it's the analytics profession that we need to really focus on and that people analytics is just one aspect of the analytics profession. There are so many different aspects of the analytics profession. I actually like being part of this analytics profession, okay? I, I, because I do think, and, and we already kind of talked about this, the future is going to be, it's not just about the people data. You're going to need so much, tons of data to really tell the story. And so to, to, to really create that niche that that's its own profession, I think could, could hinder things a little bit. I mean, if you just take uh, the example of this conference, which has been going on for many years, and you have people from many different fields, uh, many different backgrounds, uh, if you were to say you have to have this designation or you have to test for this designation, I think it would choke off a lot of um, connectivity. It's a, Yeah, it's a great insight. It, that's 
certainly food for thought because we do have a, an evolving space. And I, I like what you both said personally and without going on my uh, own thinking line right before drinks, I will spare you and uh, maybe have that conversation over, over drinks. But I, I will land with this is that we have a bunch of younger people and some of whom are going to be here tomorrow who aspire for careers in this space. And we all have entered this space from what I would call our structure of interpretation, whether it be economics, psychology, IT, finance. So, you know, to your points, to echo both what you said, is that that diversity is really a strength that, you know, we can continue to leverage. And I was really taken by Sarah O'Brien in her title. I believe it used to be Global Head of Talent Insights at LinkedIn. Now it's Global Head of insights at LinkedIn. And I'm like, whoa, hey. So I think it amplifies, you know, what, what you're saying in the world hitting that way. Um, any final comments, uh, Don and Amit, before we uh, head upstairs and enjoy the evening? I would just say thank you for sticking with us so long. Uh, <laughs> I know where the barrier between you and drinks. Thanks for the questions. I I would definitely echo that. It's been a long day, and I'm sure for all of you sitting here, um, but it's been, from what I hear, it's been a really amazing day. And I would also say just um, for those of you that are more in the beginning stages, um, think about that one kind of one business problem that you're going to help your organization with and think about the data that you need and how you can really have an impact. Thank you both very much. Yeah, thank you all. I'll give you the final word. Let's go, let's go. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this special episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. You can subscribe via your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make this podcast. If you haven't already, do check out myhrfuture.com for the latest learning and news on the future of HR. And you can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter there too. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you stay tuned for future episodes of the podcast. We'll be back soon, so I'll see you then.